Today's scripture reading is from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 13, and I'll be reading verses 11 through 14. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You may be seated. All right, good morning, church. Thank you for being here with us today. Um, I did want to say a note about uh, Family Sunday. If you do, um, we have the, the service on downstairs, uh, live on TV. Also, we don't stream or anything like that, but we do put it on downstairs just uh, so that if, uh, if you need to take your kids downstairs, uh, you'll be able to still continue wor uh, worshiping with us this morning. Um, I want to welcome you, and hey, I do want to especially uh, just, uh, I want to welcome uh, New Hope Baptist Church and just say thank you for being here with us today. We have uh, been praying for you for several weeks, so it's an honor uh, to have you here amongst us. This morning, uh, we are going to be continuing our catechism series, and we're going to be in 2 Corinthians in the text that Jeff just read for us. I want to, um, so when we're going through the catechism series, I want to be clear that I'm, I'm not preaching on the catechism question specifically. I'm preaching on the text that we believe reveals and enforces the truth of uh, what we're reciting in the catechism. So today, this text in 2 Corinthians is about more than just the triune God, but not less. And in, uh, we'll see at the end of the text that uh, the truth of who God is, the truth of the Trinity, um, helps is, is even part of how Paul is appealing to the church in regards to how they are to live. So uh, I want to give you a little bit of background on 2 Corinthians as we look at these few verses. 2 Corinthians is a letter written to the church in Corinth, which is a church that Paul planted. You can read the story of this church in Acts 18. And not long after the church was planted in Corinth, Paul received a report that things were not going well. Um, this is a young church, and needless to say, they had issues, some pretty serious issues. And so Paul responded to those issues by sending them a letter, which we know as 1 Corinthians. He writes this heartfelt letter, giving them instruction, speaking to what's happening, and it didn't go well. They did not receive the letter well. Um, some responded to that letter with a great deal of rebelliousness and anger, and some in the church rejected Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians. So scripture tells us that Paul paid them a visit after that, and he recalls that visit in 2 Corinthians, calling it a painful visit. And so after all of this faithful pursuit, most of the church in Corinth realizes their error, and they repented of their arrogance. Paul writes 2 Corinthians to remind the church that he still loves them. At the beginning of 2 Corinthians, you just see the love of Paul for these people pouring out. And he also wants to address those who are still being rebellious amongst them. Paul says that he wrote this letter in anguish and in tears. Paul's letter is broken up into three parts. In verses 1 through 7, he acknowledges the reconciliation with most in Corinth and celebrates this. In 8 and 9, he addresses this specific uh, issue of forgotten generosity. And then in 11, 12, and 13, he challenges those in the church that still reject him. And this is where we find our verse today. So I'm going to start and 13 by reading verse 5. It says this, Examine yourselves 
to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Paul's wrapping up his letter to the church in Corinth, and he makes he delivers a startling challenge to those who oppose him in verse 5. He essentially challenges them to consider the question, am I really a Christian? And he gives two ways he wants them to do this. Number one, he tell, challenges them to examine themselves. Theologian Alan Redpath once wrote this, to examine yourself, in fact, is to submit to the examination and scrutiny of Jesus Christ the Lord. And this never to fix attention on sin, but on Christ, and to ask him to reveal in you that which grieves his spirit, to ask him to give you grace that it might be put away and cleansed in his precious blood. In that sense, self-examination takes the chill away from your soul, it takes the hardness away from your heart, it takes the shadow away from your life, it sets the prisoner free. Paul's essentially challenging the church to sit to preach the gospel to themselves and to consider the implications of the gospel upon their own life? Am I walking in faithfulness with what the Lord, as a reflection of what the Lord has done for me? And he says not only to examine yourself, but he challenges them, test yourself or prove yourself might be another way to say this word. Charles Spurgeon on the idea of proving yourself found in 2 Corinthians. Do not merely sit in your closet and look at yourselves alone, but go out into this busy world and see what kind of piety you truly have. Remember, many a man's religion will stand examination that will not stand proof. We may sit at home and look at our religion and say, well, I think this will do. Paul is saying these things, knowing full well that there are some in the church who are very religious, but not Christian. Their struggle within the church is reflective of their worldly perspective. We tend to think of the term worldly and we apply it to licentiousness. But the truth is, religion, the idea that I can attain, that God can be in my debt through my works, legalism can be just as much a worldly idea as the opposite. Both legalism and license, both the younger son and the older, are two worldly means to attain a salvation that only the Lord can provide. Authority, submission, humility, service, strength and weakness, means above ends. These are kingdom values that do not complete, they don't compute with the world. And when the church compromises and lowers the bar on truth and love so that religious non-Christians begin to have authority, we see that the result is absolute destruction. And so Paul's encouraging the church, examine yourself and then test yourself. Examine, consider and then also put yourself in a position to, like, are you actually living out? Is the fruit there? Is there fruit that's birthed from the truth of the gospel? You need time to simply reflect on the state of your heart and reflect on the fruit that it's bearing. Paul points out that we are prone to forget the glorious truth that Jesus Christ is in you unless, he warns, you fail the test. He's saying essentially, Faith without works is not faith. It's dead. Paul challenges the church, including you and I, to put ourselves in positions to examine whether or not we truly believe what we say we do. Has God changed our heart for the lowly, the broken? Is that reflected in our life and confirmed by the bride of Christ? He goes on 
to speak of this in verse 6. He says, I hope you will find that we have not failed the test. Paul anticipates full well that those who, will, who, who are against him will respond with a very obvious response. Well, maybe you're not a Christian. Have you tested yourself, Paul? And Paul, he's fully confident through examination and testing. He dismisses the question, knowing there is more than enough evidence for his faith and authority. He recognizes this is a common tactic of those in sin. And Paul sees it for what it is. The offense of the gospel will often lead one to point a finger at anyone except themselves. In verse 7, But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Paul reiterates a desire for repentance among those who are still showing hardness of heart. He says that you may not do wrong and declares that he has not disqualified himself. While he says that, he also acknowledges this, however, that he may seem to have failed. Paul acknowledges that from a worldly perspective, he's not too impressive, and it likely seems that he has failed. I mean, consider the circumstances of Paul. Paul has been shipwrecked, jailed, the, the church that he loved so much, kind of his, you know, the church plant that maybe he's most known with, for at the moment is, seems to be in ruins. They're not listening to him. They're rebelling against him. He's left everything. He's poor, broke, and oftentimes alone. And from a worldly perspective, Paul acknowledges it may seem as if I have, I have failed. And know that Paul is saying this as one who today we read and we acknowledge Paul as a hero in the faith. But Paul did not know this at this time. Paul did not know that 2,000 years later, we would be gathered and we would be discussing and learning from his very life. In the midst of this moment, I am sure, like Paul was fully aware that according to the world's standards, he was a failure, but he was fully aware that through the blood of Christ, he was a son. Paul is making a distinction between heavenly success and worldly success. Worldly success gains power influence, prestige at all costs. But heavenly success produces patience, quiet contentment, peace without recognition, and the scorn of the worldly. This last week I was listening to a podcast and Russell Moore uh, recalled a memory from seminary. Russell Moore spoke about a pastor who was very well known for building a, an, an empire of a church in Illinois. He had built a massive church that was in multiple cities, and in the end, he was let go and disgraced because of a great deal of financial impropriety. And Russell Moore recalls listening to this man speak in seminary one time. And this pastor told this group of students, people will savage you for the very strengths that they depended on to get there. And the point was, this pastor, knowing full well that for him, the ends did justify the means, even if the means were corrupt, what he's saying to them is essentially, people will turn on you eventually for the very skills and positions you had to take in order to get this empire to this place to begin with. And Russell Moore rightly addresses this by saying, what he said is probably true, but maybe there's something wrong with the kind of strengths we depend on. Maybe we're seeking the wrong there. Like what the pastor was saying about what it had taken to build this thing, it was probably true. 
Like the things that they valued in him and this entrepreneurial businessman to get them there probably were the things that then offended them later on. But maybe the problem was that they were always aiming for the wrong destination as a whole. That worldly success, a worldly definitions of success was always that which was primarily valued. And I think this seems to be Paul's point. That according to the ways of the world, he is a failure in this moment. But he, re he recognizes that he's not in regards to the kingdom. Recently, I had a friend, uh, not too far away from here, who was fired and, uh, from his position as a pastor. And he was fired for faithfully, um, he was known for faithfully preaching on the truth. But that over a long period of time, the church shrunk. And this was used as a justification to let him go despite faithfulness. The world would say, this is absolutely what you should do. If you hire a football co college football coach and they don't win games, you got to let them go because you got to win games. That's the point. So a shrinking church means poor, for, poor for performance and failure according to the standards of the world. But the kingdom says that success is faithfulness. God takes care of the rest. We plant the seed like a good farmer, but the Lord either brings rain or withholds it to his glory. We are farmers begging for rain, not entrepreneurs building empires. Whether we live or we die, whether our church thrives or comes to its last day, rain or shine, feast or famine, success, victory, redemption were accomplished once and for all by Jesus Christ our Lord. Thus, we may plant seeds knowing full well that we may not live to sit under the shade they produce, but that the Lord is glorified in them nonetheless. For Paul acknowledges in verses 8 and 9 that all we have is true. In verses 8 and 9, it says this, For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad then, we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. Paul acknowledges his pastoral limitation. All he has is the truth. He has no gimmicks. He has no games. He has nothing else to bring to the table. He just has the truth of God's word. He's not interested in the worldly perception of success, fame, notoriety. These are not his goal. Even living is not his goal. He is happy to experience pain if that is what is necessary for the church to flourish in the gospel. His prayer is that the body in Corinth might be restored or this term could literally mean be made whole. Essentially, he's praying that the division might cease by the power of the gospel, that those who are in error might be convicted and humbled and the church may be made whole once again. And in verse 10, he says, for this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for the building up and not for tearing down. Paul has had to take a hard stand as of late with the church that he loves, and he did not enjoy doing so. He loves these people. They're a family to him. He desires to courage, encourage and to be encouraged for his primary role as a shepherd, as an apostle in this sense, is to build up and point these people to Jesus. And this is the side of his ministry that is a glorious joy to be a part of not only for the shepherd, but for the whole body. And this is why Paul encourages the church to that end in verses 11 through 13, where he says this, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. 
And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Notice that this this building up of the body, this unity is what Paul desires to see. He tells the church to rejoice, to remember the gospel, to examine yourselves and remember that from which you came. Remember that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to live a perfect life, to die a brutal death, so that there would no longer be condemnation for you, but everlasting joy in Christ Jesus. Remember the gospel and rejoice. He's addressing the reality that sometimes as the church, we get so distracted by the things of the world that the truth of the gospel is minimalized, that everything else makes us so fearful and afraid that we forget to rejoice in the truth of the gospel. And he tells them, aim for restoration. Don't live your life trying to find flaws. Don't live your life trying to nitpick whatever you can find. Don't live your life trying to find flaws in the church because believe me, if that's your whole bend, you will find them. And if you want to meet with me, I'll tell you up front where they are. It's not, it's not all that hidden. But for some, like often that can, that can be our goal and we can be caught up in that. And that's what's happening in Corinth. There's these people that just want to nitpick Paul. They're so offended by the, the, the truth that he preaches that they're just kind of constantly looking. And Paul says, aim for restoration. Would restoration be your goal? Not finding flaws, but in areas where we disagree, would restoration be the primary goal because we are a people who have been restored by the love and grace of Jesus Christ? He tells them to comfort one another. Outdo one another in showing love. Be there for one another. Be a comfort or encouragement to the one who is hurting. Listen in stillness to the voice of the Spirit that he may prompt you to see whom and the body you can encourage and love this day. He tells them to agree with one another. On everything, no. But on the gospel, that's his point. There will always be division. There will always be Cardinals fans in the church. There will always be Tom Brady supporters. And there's nothing we can do about that. That's just part of the fallen world we live in. We don't have to agree on those things, but we agree on the gospel. And delight in your common ground. That being the atoning work of Jesus, so that, he encourages them, we can live in peace. To live as a Christian is to live at war in many respects. The gospel makes that clear. We are at war not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces, the enemy that we stand against. The world, the beast, these things, like they, they don't, the antichrists that come, those who oppose Jesus, they do not deny that there is a war but they do seem to be hell-bent on enticing us to fight with the weaponry of the world. They're all for getting in a fight. They're all for embracing. They're not denying the war, but they want us, they want to sell us their weapons that we might use the same schemes that they do. However, we don't battle the same way that the world does. Jesus came, firstly, to atone for sins, but secondly, to display the way that we fight, to display the way that we live because of the gospel. Jesus is courageous and gentle. He's honest and gracious. He's powerful and humble. To follow Jesus is to continue living in response to his radical call to discipleship, but living in peace with one another and ourselves by the power of the gospel in the midst of a bloodthirsty world that they may know and see something different. We're to live lives, questionable lives, 
to live lives that are, that are so filled with love because of Jesus, and uni- we're so unified as a gospel people, that the world stops and asks why. Live a life worthy of question. A live a life that evokes question from those who are dying in an ocean of sin and death. And what model do we have for such a piece as this? How can we even consider what it would look like to live in such perfect community? Let us consider the final text. This is our catechism text for today. Verse 14 says this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In verse 14, we see the full picture of God summarized in one verse. Father, Son, and Spirit. And interestingly, this is the only place in the New Testament where this Trinitarian blessing is worded in such a way. Things have been bad in Corinth. They've been really bad. People are weary and tired, and others are still angry, and there's just a lot going on. And Paul wants the church to be blessed. He wants them to be true Christians. And he wants them to see fully the goodness of God revealed in the Trinity. And so he walks them through. The gra- he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are sinners in need of redemption. We worship a perfectly holy God. God is perfectly loving, but he is not just perfectly loving. That is not the fullness of who he is. He is perfectly loving and perfectly just. And we don't understand perfect justice. Perfect justice lies outside of that which we can comprehend. An eye, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, perfect justice on the scale of God's holiness? We can't, we can't even get there. That's like, you know, if, if, if all I could see was the color green and everything was just a different color, shade of green, how would you even begin to explain to me what red is? And so God being perfectly loving but perfectly just could not let sin enter into his presence, to his kingdom. But being perfectly loving, he made a way. And that way is Jesus. Jesus Christ is drawn to the broken, drawn to the sinner. When we look at scripture, the most important people were the people that Jesus walked past. He walked straight to those who had been overlooked for generations. And those who had much, who saw themselves as much, were so offended by Jesus because they believed they had built up their own empire. But Jesus goes to the weak, to the broken, That's where his heart is drawn to. That's who he continues to draw to himself. The grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God. That Jesus came, that he offered us this redemption because God so loved us that he made a way for us. Being perfectly just and perfectly loving, he made a way that we could come before him as those who are righteous. And that was through his strong arm that is Jesus. We are born into an ocean of sin and death that we cannot escape from. And God, being rich in mercy, reaches down his strong arm that is Jesus Christ and plucks us from that ocean, breathes life back into us, and does not let us go from his strong hand. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Not only have we been rescued, we were pursued by a loving Savior. We've been rescued by a loving God. And we walk with the loving Spirit. 
God, Father, Son, and Spirit does not leave us on our own here in this place. He's not abandoned us, but he continues to walk with us. The part of the gift of the cross is not only do we receive atonement, but there's no longer a need for a temple. Jesus Christ dwells in you, walks with you, speaks to you. The Holy Spirit, his temple is now you. We have the perfect fellowship, like we, the perfect fellowship that we see, Father, Son, and Spirit. Well, the Spirit now dwells in you. You are never alone. You never walk alone. You are never without the hope you need. You are never isolated. The Spirit of God is willing and desires to speak, to share, to lead you. And alongside of that, as if the Spirit wasn't enough, you have God's Word. Within the Trinity, we see the perfection of God on display. Within Himself, He lacks nothing. Perfect community, perfect authority and submission that permeates from his very being. Christian, you will never find peace through focusing on your feelings. Countless blogs, books, uh, they continue, like we continue to sift through trying to find the holy grail of self-help and we're never successful. That's why the market continues to grow. However, Paul's closing words remind us that the peace we desire is found through growing in our knowledge of the living God, whom has stayed the same through all the other attempts that have come before. Lifestyle change, it won't do it. Peace is found in gazing upon Jesus, growing in our awareness of who he is, and understanding that which he saved us for. The compassion of Jesus leads us to show love in a way that the world does not understand. It results not merely in strangers becoming friends, but enemies becoming family. The desire of God alters our behaviors. A changed life is not birthed from a desire to earn love, but from an unearned love which the Father has given. The desire of God alters our behaviors. The compassion of Jesus leads us to show love in a way that the world doesn't understand. And the voice of the Holy Spirit turns our eyes to that which the world cannot see, that which is a shadow of another world, the one for which we were created. This morning, um, we close it's a little, little shorter because we want to take some time for something special here at the end. But I want to I close this morning by praying this prayer of blessing over you, uh, over our body, to the glory of God. Will you join me to that end? Lord, thank you for this day, a day that we could come together, we could consider uh, the truth of your word. Lord, thank you that you love us. Lord, thank you that you came for us. And Lord, I thank you that you walk with us. I ask that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ might be upon us. That if there are any, Lord, in this room who do not know such a grace, whether they're walking into a church for the first time or whether they've been walking in for you know, a thousand years, uh, Lord, if there are any that do not know your grace this morning, I, I ask that they would. Lord, for those who are yours, who have forgotten such truths, would you remind us, help us, Lord, to reflect, to examine ourselves, to remember who we are in you. 
Lord, might the grace of Jesus Christ be upon us. Lord, might the love of the Father change us. I ask in the name of Jesus that the love that the Father has, the delight the Father has for His children, might change who we are and how we live. Lord, help us uh, to, to set aside all of the world's techniques that they have sold and to be captivated by the love of You. Lord, we are often prone to try to live in a certain way that we might earn your love. But I ask that you might make it known, might permeate our hearts with the truth that you loved us first. And God, I ask that the Holy Spirit might help us to this end. Holy Spirit, speak to us, push aside, convict us of all that gets in the way from us hearing you. Take the pods out of our ears. Take the the glitter, whatever shiny thing is captivating our eyes. Remove whatever you must. And help us to hear you. Speak truth of the Father's love and the Son's grace to us. Lead us in all things. Lord, thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit. You are good and gracious. We love you. We are dependent on you. We give you all the glory for all things. You are abundantly gracious to us. Not that we deserve it, but that it has been given graciously through the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you. We thank you for all things. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we come to the time in our gathering Uh, where we invite the Christian to come and partake of communion. Uh, If you are in Jesus this morning, we invite you to come and to take the bread and the juice and to remember Jesus, that his body was broken so that your record of lawlessness may be broken. That as we said, God is perfectly loving, but he is perfectly just. And you cannot come before him with that which is unholy. But because of Jesus, because Jesus lived perfectly and faithfully, and his body was broken, that your record is now broken if you are in Jesus. Those sins, the ledger of your wrongdoings is no longer valid. It is gone. And you have been given access to come before the Father. And this blood was poured out, and in the same way, Christ's righteousness was poured out. And it was bestowed on you that if you are in Jesus, not only is your record of lawlessness dissolved, That would be enough in and of itself that perhaps you could come before God as one who's willing to serve and be a a peasant at his feet. But God did not stop there. Jesus' righteousness was bestowed on you so that it is, is as if you earned, so that it is if you have the righteousness that Jesus actually earned. So you're not just a peasant. You've been made a son and a daughter. You've been made heirs to the throne of grace because of the redemption, the righteousness of Jesus bestowed. So we come to the table and we see the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit put on perfect display as we gather around a family table to remember, to demonstrate with our hands the truth of the gospel that our hearts and heads need to believe. And so if you are a Christian this morning, we invite you to come, to break the bread, to dip it in the juice, to take a few moments and just do exactly what Paul challenged, 
Examine yourself. Sit. Examine yourself. Speak the truth of the gospel to yourself. And take your time. If you are not a Christian this morning, communion's not for you, but Jesus is for you. Don't come and take communion. It would be silly outside of Christ. But I would love to sit up here and talk to you about Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done, um, if you would let me. So Christian, when you're ready, come and partake of the Great Communion Supper.